I, uh, oh, thank you. I won't be able to take it right now. I'll, have, I'll spit it out if I put it in right now, but thank you. The Lord provides in mysterious ways. <laughs> um, I like oxymorons. How many of you know what an oxymoron is? The word itself tells us what it is. The word oxy comes from the Greek word or Latin word oxus, which means sharp. And the word moron comes from the the Latin word moros, which means dull. Sharp, dull. Oxymoron. I, I, I say that I like them. I've jotted down a few of my favorite oxymorons for you this morning. Freezer burn. Plastic silverware. My favorite one of all, sanitary landfill. Another one, alone together. Uh, found missing. Icy hot. Minor miracle. My only choice. Think about these. Sharp, dull. Paper, tablecloth. Student, teacher. Found missing. What's that mean? Probably my favorite of all, travel stop. Travel stop. I love oxymorons, and did you know that we even have oxymorons that should never be applied to church? One that comes to mind is boring worship. Should never be said. I thought of that when I heard about the little boy who asked his mother, if she could remember the highest number she had ever counted to. Well, mother didn't, couldn't remember the highest number that she'd ever counted to, so she asked him about the highest number he'd ever counted to. And his answer was 5,372. Kind of a random number. Mom was puzzled, and so she asked him why he stopped at that particular number. And he said, well, church was over. Now, as you probably also know, I like to survey surveys. Often when people are asked in a survey why they don't go to church, they will reply something along these lines, church is just too boring. Well... I recognize that there are some church services that can seem dull, especially for someone who might be a a non-Christian. But I want to suggest to you this morning as we continue with part four of our sermon series, Passionate Worship, that true worship is anything but boring. The very essence of what worship is should never allow allow us to be bored with it. 
You know, when we come before the throne of a majestic God of the universe, the God who has created everything that is and has, has done amazing things in our lives, how many of you can say God's done some amazing things in my life? Amen. Uh, we, we shouldn't be able to but help to break out into adoration for who he is, for what he's done. A couple of weeks ago, we, we talked about from Psalm 95 that worship should, should always incorporate two elements, an element of rejoicing and an element of reverence. But this morning, I want to take us on into Psalm 96 and, and help us to understand that there's a third component of worship that is absolutely necessary, and that component is response. We have to be responsive in our worship. If not, we run the risk of becoming hardened before the presence of God. You're in Psalm 96, and before I, I jump there, um, I, I, let me just make a, a couple of introductory remarks. First of all, of all the places in Scripture where it's unfortunate for us that we have chapter breaks, Psalm 90 through probably 103 are, is probably the most unfortunate place. And, and for those of you who don't understand what I mean by that, in the original translation, there were no chapter breaks. It was all just right after the other with no divisions whatsoever, no verses. Those were added for our convenience so that we could locate things easier. But if you go to the last four verses of Psalm 95... And I realize we talked about these a couple of weeks ago. <coughs> we talked about these a couple of weeks ago, but in order to give us perspective and context about what's coming in Psalm 90, number 96, we need to go back to those last four verses where the psalmist says, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on that day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Now, that's a pretty blunt indictment of the danger of seeing our, our hearts hardened. I, I jokingly referred to it that some of us develop hardening of the arteries. What I mean is, In a very practical sense, our hearts become hardened. We become calloused. I think it's even possible for us to become so familiar with the way that we do worship that it breeds contempt in us. Uh, In other words, uh, it's just another Sunday. We're doing some of the same songs, some of the same stuff. So I'm just not really into it this morning. That's a, a sign of our hearts becoming hardened. Worship, how many times have I told this? Worship is not about us. It's about God. How can you ever get bored with God? How can we ever become complacent with God? It shouldn't be possible, and yet it does happen. And here God is warning his people of the danger of the hardening of their hearts. Now, this song of worship that we're getting ready to read from in Psalm 96 is based upon 
an anthem of adoration by the psalmist David. Uh, the time that he wrote these, this psalm, 96, coincided with an event that takes place in First Chronicles chapter number 16. And without going there and reading it for you, let me just tell you what was happening. David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant, that is the dwelling place of God, to its rightful place in the city of Jerusalem. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. And here, here David comes, and, and as that ark is being escorted into Jerusalem, the city of God, David is wildly dancing and rejoicing before the Lord. He's not inhibited in any way in his worship. He's just letting it all hang out, so to speak. Don't take that figuratively, but literally. This is a, a, what I call a, a grand missionary hymn in Psalm 96. The psalmist is reminding the people of Israel that the blessings of God were never intended just for one group of people, them, but it's for all people. And lastly, it, it's, it's a, being a call to sing songs and to break out into praise that's given in the context of the coming of Christ, his glorious reign. We sing, friends, not just because of the past or the present. We sing and we worship because we know what's coming in the future. Amen? How many of you believe Jesus is coming again? How many of you believe he's going to take us to be with himself and it's going to be unbridled, unbroken worship for eternity? And that is still a long time. <clears throat> Again, before I get to my outline, let me ask and answer some questions. Who should be worshipped? The Lord. Verses 11 and 12, he's mentioned by name or by pronoun in every stanza of, these, of this psalm except verses 11 and 12. Look at it. Every verse, but every verse of the chapter, but verses 11 and 12. Secondly, what is worship? Worship means to fall on your face or bow down. That term is found more than 170 times throughout the scriptures. It's a matter of recognizing our place before God, and more importantly, acknowledging His place, His position, if you will, before us. Third question, how should we worship? Well, there's a variety of ways. Verse 1 talks about worshiping with music. Verse number 2, with proclamation. Verse number 8, by giving him glory. Verse number 8 also, by bringing an offering, uh, by coming into his courts, by living holy lives, by witnessing for him according to verse number 10. Fourthly, why should we worship? Verse 2, we worship because God saved us. Hallelujah. Verse number 4, we worship because of his greatness and his fearsomeness. In verse 5, we worship because of his power. Excuse me. I'm not going through puberty. It's just a problem. In verse number 6, we worship because of his splendor, his majesty, his strength, and his beauty. In verse number 13, we worship because God is righteous and true. And he's coming to judge the earth. And the last question is... Where are we to worship? 
First, we are to worship Lord, the Lord among the nations. Secondly, we are to worship Him in His sanctuary. And thirdly, we are to worship Him in His courts. Now, I could quit there, but if you know me well by now, you'll know that I'm not going to. That's a summarization of this chapter. But just one last thing for you to consider. When are we to worship? Well, if you look at verse 2, it calls us to sing and proclaim His salvation, not just on Sunday, not just when we come together in corporate worship, We are to worship him day after day after day in the way that we live our lives. Our lives must testify to the fact that God has done something supernatural within us. You know, we we just finished revival a couple of weeks ago. How many of you remember that? (laughs) Well, I'm praying that we not only remember the event, I'm praying that we remember what's come to our hearts and that we celebrate it day by day. You know, we, we, we saw Pastor Corbett pray for a number of people, and, and I think we came with the anticipation and, and, and the, the goal of seeing someone miraculously, instantaneously healed. Hello? That's not always the way God works, but that doesn't mean he didn't work. Let me tell you something, friends. The greatest, most supernatural miracle that has ever taken place is when God saved you. He took your past. He took all of those heinous sins from your past and wiped the slate clean and made you a new creation in Christ. Nothing, no one else has ever been able to do that. It's the greatest miracle, and it is an instantaneous miracle. If by faith you believe, if if you confess with your mouth that Jesus died and that he rose again on the third day, you are saved. So we, we worship day after day. Not necessarily needing a miracle or something supernatural to substantiate the reason why we praise or worship. We should praise or worship just by virtue of the fact that we are saved. We belong to Jesus. We are children of the King. Children of the Most High God. And He is coming someday to reward us for our faith in his saving work. Now, at the risk of breaking the flow of this holy hymn, I want us to, to just look at it in its entirety, and then I'll come back and bring it, break it down a little bit by verses. Psalm 96. Sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all peoples. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He's feared above all gods. I find myself wanting to break out into that chorus from back in the 90s. That is this verse. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. You remember it? 
But I'll go ahead and read because my voice won't handle it. For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He's feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the people, and ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and enter his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be shaken. He judges the people fairly. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea and all that fills it resound. Let the fields and everything in them exult. Then all the trees of the forest will shout for joy before the Lord, for He is coming, for He is coming to judge the earth, and He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with His faithfulness. Titled this message, The Imperatives of Worship. And the first imperative of worship is that we exalt the name of the Lord. Verses 1 and 2 said, sing a new song to the Lord. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. In those one and a half verses, we are called to sing to the Lord three different times. And when something occurs in Scripture three different times, it's called being repeated in triplicate. Or the official name is emphatic Semitic triplet. Why does it do that? It's repeated to get our attention. You've heard the phrase, I'm sure, that we're going to be singing through all eternity. Holy, holy, holy. Emphatic, Semitic, triplet. It's done to get our attention. Singing out to our, our God, our, our God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It started way back in creation. Some of you may think that the book of Genesis is the first book. Well, the book of Genesis details creation. But the oldest book in the Bible is, in fact, the book of Job. And you find in Job chapter number 38, these words in verse number 7. While the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. There's been singing and shouting, friends, from the beginning of time... And there's going to be more to come. If you go to the book of Revelation, chapter 15, verse number 3, it records the song of the Lamb of God. It says, Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, this is just a guess, and I'm not trying to be cute in saying this, but I'm guessing... That when that song plays someday in the presence of God while we are standing before the throne in heaven, it's not going to sound like that version that a student recites something at a school play. It's not going to go like this. Great and inspiring are your works. Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. The King of the nations. That's not the way it's going to happen. 
I believe that since the world was created with this symphony of joyful praise, all creation is going to break into song when Jesus comes again, and it's going to resonate across the portals of heaven. Let me tell, just warn you in advance, if you have a problem with the worship down here, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I don't know who the sound man's going to be up there, but I'm guessing he's not going to listen to anybody. It's going to resonate across the portals of heaven. And I can also tell you this, you're going to be glad it does. Because you're going to be one of them doing the resonating. In the meantime, we're called to sing to the Lord as we wait for his appearing. Notice that we're to sing a new song. This can mean something that's brand new, but it can also mean something that is delightful and precious. Something that's exquisite. You know, when something is new, it's fresh. If all we ever sing in church is kumbaya, then chances are good that we're not growing and experiencing fresh insights from the Lord. Now, that dates me. That was a song back in the 70s that some of you have no idea. Boy, I'm sure glad we don't sing it anymore. I didn't like it then, and I don't like it now. It was cute. It was novel. It was new. But let me just say that while I love singing songs that I already know, I really like it when we learn new ones. Both the old hymns and the new praise songs, they're all essential to meet the ever-varying manifestations of God's multifaceted character. That's a fancy way of saying this. You can't replace great is thy faithfulness. But how can you improve upon how great is our God? There's a place for all of it. It's out of the heart. It's what's in the heart that we express in worship. It doesn't matter when the song was copyrighted. (laughs) Matter of fact, if you want to get real picky about Old songs versus new songs. Did you know that the generation that ushered in what we now call the old hymns, they wanted to go back to the way they did it before? And you know how that was? Just singing straight out of Scripture, the Scripture verses, with no music, no accompaniment, nothing. They thought that that was the way to worship. I'm telling you, when we start putting God in a box of how we want to worship, we're missing out on the entire experience of what God wants to say to us. He wants to, he wants to give us the full content. I believe that. Can you imagine? I, this is probably a poor, really poor week to make this point. But can you imagine what would happen If newscasts on TV and radio reported on last month's stories rather than what's happening today. Just think about that. How many of you would be interested in watching it if you'd already heard it for 30 days? You know, maybe a sorry way of putting it, but consider it from that context. I remember when we were pastoring our second church uh, in in Gainesville, Texas, just outside of Gainesville, Texas. <laughs> my mom and dad would come to visit us every now and then. And bless my mom's heart, she would bring me weeks old, sometimes month old copies 
of the Haskell County Monitor Chief. (laughs) Now, if you have a new copy of the Haskell County Monitor Chief, that's the county newspaper, it's about as interesting as watching paint dry. That's a current version. And bless my mom's heart, she'd bring me those month-old copies of that monitor chief. And about the only thing I could envision as being useful was going and buying a parakeet and using the paper to line the bottom of the cage. I'm just being honest with you. My point is that I wonder if sometimes some of us are still reading old news in our spiritual lives. We are a God that's ever-creating If you think the creation ended at the end of the six days, friends, it was just beginning. It's still expanding. We, We serve a creating God. For some of God's people, I fear that it's been so long since they've experienced anything fresh with the Lord, they've just gotten used to living on the fumes of what they had used to have in their relationship with Jesus. Martin Luther said this, Christ is now as fresh unto me as if he'd shed his blood but this very hour. That's the way our relationship with Jesus should be. It's not saying you have to sing old songs. It's not saying you have to sing new songs. It's saying that your worship has to be new and fresh. It has to come from your heart. It has to emanate from your inner being. When Friends, when we walk with Jesus daily and we all the time experience new ways of encountering him, we shouldn't be able to help but break into joyful song, joyful worship. Indulge me for just a moment here. Every one of you, close your eyes. I want you to utilize your imagination for a second. This is Revelation chapter 14. John says, Then I looked, and there on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, standing, And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder. The sound I heard was also like harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne. Can you even begin to imagine what that's going to be like? You talk about duck bumps running up and down your back. You're going to have a bad case of them. Singing a new song. Jesus is in your presence. You can see him even as you can see yourself. You're going to be there with loved ones who've gone on before. You know it's just the beginning of what is called forever. And you're going to be in that atmosphere. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be wonderful. So we're to sing to the Lord a new song. In the last part of verse number one, all the earth is to break out into song, exalting God for who he is and what he's done. This call to sing is not just for the people of Israel, friends. It's intended for the whole earth. The book of Revelation again gives us some further insight in chapter 15. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. Because all the nations will come and worship before you because your righteous acts have been revealed. People from every nation, 
every tribe, every tongue. Now, I don't know what God's system of bookkeeping looks like. But I have a feeling, and again, this may just be my imagination running wild, but I have a feeling it's going to be work like this. In God's bookkeeping, there's going to be some kind of record that says, for example, a dollar that you gave that was used in a mission work either around the world or maybe even to a drug addict in Great Bend, Kansas. That dollar that you gave was instrumental in them making a decision to come to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And you're going to look around and you're going to see that person and in between them singing, holy, 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 they're going to mouth this word, these words to you. Thank you. Thank you. Can you imagine what that's going to do? How are you going to be able to withhold worship when you see something like that happening? I believe that's how God's bookkeeping is going to work. All nations, every tribe, every nation, every tongue is going to come and worship And I don't know about you, but that brings me great hope and fires me up to be involved in all that God's doing wherever he's doing it. Not only are we to exalt his name, but secondly, the second imperative is we are to extend his kingdom. Verses 2 and 3. Proclaim his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonderful works among all people. How do you extend the kingdom? By proclaiming what God's done in you. By proclaiming his salvation. We're told to do it when? Day after day. And we're told to do it where? Among the nations. Our message. Think about this friends. Our message. Is the best news that the world has ever received. How many of you can say. Yeah I I can vouch for that. Best news I ever got. We have the best news. And our method is to share that good news daily. And our mandate is to take it to everyone. Did a little bit of listening, probably too much listening, to the TV this week. And I came away from it with this feeling. I sure could use some good news. Sure could use some good news. Let me tell you what, friends. The only good news that I'm aware of is that Jesus still saves. Amen? He can save to the uttermost all who are apart from him. He can save us. He can make us new. That's good news. Our friends, our family members, they need to hear from us what salvation has done in our lives. You think there's anybody out there that needs a fresh new start? Hey, I can remember when I did. Matter of fact, I can remember several times when I did. Times when I had already been saved, but I'd willingly walked away from the good news of the gospel. And I knew that my life wasn't lining up with the way that God intended me to live it. So I came back and I experienced the good news all over again. Why? Because his mercy endures forever and his faithfulness from generation to generation. As we were singing that song a while ago, I thought, you know, Lord, thank you for people of faith. Thank you for the faith that I have. 
But you know what? There's a big difference between having faith and faithfulness. We all have some measure of faith, but God is faithfulness. That means he never changes. He's eternal. His his belief in his people is eternal. He never gives up on us. You know what? Good thing I'm not God. There's been several times I would have given up on me. But because of his faithfulness, he never gives up on us. Even when we don't have faith to believe, he is faithful. Because of the salvation. Oh, let me go back. I just skipped some. You need to hear this. I, I, I think it was back 2000, early 2000s. You might remember the story of a, of a Russian submarine that sank to the ocean floor. 118 sailors on that Russian submarine. They made over a dozen attempts to rescue them, and none of them worked. And as a result, 118 souls perished inside that sub. And I don't know why this came to my mind as I was preparing this message, but I remember hearing that. And when I, remem- when I remembered it, I remembered thinking and appreciating all over again how Jesus has provided a way out for us. Can you imagine having no hope of having a way out? What must they have been feeling knowing that nothing was going to save them, nothing was going to rescue them? Thankfully, in our, in our spiritual life, we never have to worry about that because he's always provided and he always will provide for us a way out. Instead of being trapped in an ocean of sin, Jesus gave his life in order to rescue us from certain death and destruction. Because of the salvation we've received, our method is to proclaim his salvation on a daily basis to everyone around us. When you fall in love with Jesus, and I fully believe that falling in love with Jesus is one of the best benefits of corporate worship, that is coming together to worship. If you really fall in love with Jesus, you want to tell everyone about it. I remember when Brenda fell in love with me. I mean, when I fell in love with Brenda. I wanted everybody to know it. I wanted everybody to know this is the one. As a matter of fact, those three friends that I grew up with, we did everything together. We decided to take a ski trip. Now, this was just about a couple of weeks after I'd asked Brenda to marry me. This was our annual ski trip. The one that we all looked forward to every year. We went skiing, and I hated every minute of it. And they're thinking, what is wrong with you? I was the first one to get married, by the way. They're thinking, what's wrong with him? Well, you know what was wrong? He was in love. (laughs) I missed the one that I loved. And those guys had already heard about it so much, they were tired of hearing it. That's the way our relationship with Jesus ought to be typified. We're so in love with Jesus. We just, 
We just can't not express it. We can't help but tell somebody about it. When you're full of the presence of Jesus in your life, you shouldn't be able to help but share the good news. And I understand, I'm a preacher, a pastor. So part of my job description is to speak boldly to other people about Jesus. But lay all that aside, i got to tell you this. I don't do it because it's my job description. I do it because I just happen to believe that doing life with Jesus is the best life there is to live. And people out there need to know that. Our mandate as believers is to make sure the good news, the gospel message, is not just shared with our friends, not just with our family, not just with our neighbors, but that it goes out to the nations and all people. You know, the nation of Israel was being called to think beyond its borders. At that time... When King David came into power and became the king, it was the most mighty nation on the face of the then known world. And in that position, what God was trying to say to his people, the people of Israel, through King David, was this isn't just for you. This is for everyone. You're in a position militarily, economically, To share this good news with the world. Now think about this. This is the God who helped them wipe out Amalekites, Philistines, Hittites, Hivites. I mean, go on down the world, go on down the list of those ites. They destroyed them all. And now God is saying, there's something better than destroying your enemies. It's sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Obviously, it wasn't Jesus back then because Jesus hadn't came. But he was calling them to to share the joy that was being expressed by David, their king, at the presence of God being in their midst. Tell other people about the benefit of the presence of God being in their midst, the one true God. Jesus clarified the mandate When he came in the New Testament, he said in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know what? i got to tell you this. I'm thrilled to be involved in a church that takes that mandate seriously. You you need to give yourself a hand for that because we partner with missionaries serving all over the globe. From ministering to addicts in Great Bend, Kansas, to India, to Mexico, Back to liberal Kansas, ministering to abuse victims, crisis pregnancy situations, to Convoy of Hope, a ministry that shares the love of Jesus with those who've experienced natural disasters around the globe. They're meeting people at the point of their need and in so doing, getting to share the good news of Jesus. We partner with that. Let me just tell you, God's writing that down in his bookkeeping system. He's writing it down. And someday we're going to be rewarded for it. Representatives from every one of those mission works that I mentioned, every nation, tribe, will one day day be in heaven. And again, isn't it going to be cool to know that we helped them get there? That's what evangelization is all about. I have to hurry. Next, the psalmist says that it's imperative 
that we express his greatness. As we exalt his name and look for ways to extend his kingdom, he says, thirdly, it's an imperative that we express his greatness. You'll find in verses 4 through 9 that God is not just a tribal God, but is king over all the nations. Some people worship idols, but only Jehovah God is worthy of our praise. I love to watch people. Most of you know that I'm a huge sports fan. And I suppose if you count television, they're the people that I watch more than any others. And a lot of them are professional athletes. A couple of weeks ago, the National Football League season began, and and I noticed that there are some networks who have chosen not to broadcast the national anthem before the games start. But they do find it necessary to show us the players back in the tunnel who are pumping themselves up with adrenaline before they take the field to play the game. And uh, watching those players sometimes is kind of entertaining. Some are dancing. Some are screaming. Some are getting into the middle of a circle of their teammates, jumping up and down, and unfortunately some of them even using language that needs to be beeped out. But they're doing that all in the attempt to make us believe that what they are getting ready to do is of utmost importance. Are you with me? (coughs) They leave that tunnel. They run onto the field. And then we see the fans in the stands getting equally as excited and crazy as they are. You would think... That the other team, whoever the other team might be, are the sworn enemies of their team's fans with the potential of eating their children and drowning their puppies. (laughs) It's a game. It's a game. It's entertainment. It's not life and death, friends. It's not life and death as some make it out to be. And all of that to say this. As I watch that kind of thing, I can't help but think how much we like to praise people. Whether it's an athlete or an actor or a singer, we love to applaud the attributes and the talents and the abilities of other people. But this psalm brings us back to what is most important. Only God himself is great. Only God is worthy of our praise and our undying adoration. He alone is to be revered and honored above everyone, above everything. In fact, if you look at verse 5, It says it this way, he has no rivals. There's no one that can rival God. He's the creator, and as such, we should worship him with all that we have. Verse 6 gives us four attributes that are personified as if they were attendants surrounding the throne. They're saying splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty 
are in his sanctuary. When Brenda and I, a couple of years ago, visited Cozumel, the country of Cozumel, the San Gervasio ruins, we, may, we took a tour of those ruins, and they were a collection of idols that had been built by the Mayans centuries ago. And I got to tell you, every one of them were ugly. They were ugly. Nothing attractive about them. They were gruesome. But it's not so with the one who caused things to exist before where there was nothing before. That's who God is. God is not gruesome. He's not ugly, but is instead beautiful, arrayed in splendor, clothed in majesty, armed with power and glory to the point that there's no need of the sun to shine. <laughs> That's who God is. The psalmist seems to find a renewed urgency in proclaiming the Lord in verses 7 through 9. There in two consecutive verses, he challenges us to ascribe and to give glory or give to the Lord what is due his name. And because we recognize his greatness, his majesty, and his strength, we all want to honor him. It's interesting that even though the nations are called to worship the Lord, it's the families of the nations that the psalmist points out. They're singled out to ascribe glory and strength to the Lord. Why is that important? Because God has ordained the family unit as being a special and unique creation of His. As parents and grandparents, we have to do all that we can to assure that our families are honoring God. How do we do that as a family? Find time for family worship. Do you know, you know what the extent of most families' worship is? And this is just sometimes saying grace over a meal. Friends, we need to be talking about the greatness of God. We need to be sharing what God's done in our lives. We need to be sharing what God can do in their lives. The last part of verse 8 gives us a practical way. At the time in which this psalm was written, people would take offerings to the temple, and the the specific type of offering that they took was called a thank offering. Thank offering. Things that people would give out of gratitude to the Lord for all that he'd done. You might be interested to know that if you look up the phrase thank offering in your concordance, you will find that that phrase appears 689 times throughout Scripture. Being thankful for what God has done. We're to ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, bring an offering and come into His courts. Real quickly, three ways we can bring an offering to the Lord. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us to offer our bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice. Because when we fully surrender to Him, we will worship Him through the offering of our lives. Secondly, when we adore God with songs and hymns, Hebrews 13, 15 says that we are offering a sacrifice of praise. You remember it. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. You see how these catchy little choruses are speaking directly to the Lord? 
Lord, we're bringing our sacrifice to you. We're sacrificing other needs, other, other things that are, that are important in our life, but which pale in comparison to your importance. The third way that we can bring an offering to the Lord is when we give financially, we're declaring that he's worthy. Why? Because he deserves it. Lastly, the final imperative is found in verses 10 through 13. Here we read of the reign of the Lord and his coming judgment. Now, I really want you to tune in to me on this one because I'm almost certain that you haven't viewed this in the way that I'm getting to describe it to, getting ready to describe it to you. The great author C.S. Lewis, in his book Judgment in the Psalms, points out that this particular psalm looks upon divine judgment as an occasion for rejoicing. Well, that doesn't sound too fun. Unless you understand it from the proper perspective. The ancient Jews, much like us, think of God's judgment in terms of an earthly court of justice. But the difference in our viewpoint of judgment from those early Jews is in the time of the psalmist, from theirs in the time of the psalmist, is that we as Christians, we picture in a court of law a case to be tried with those of us as Christians being the ones on trial, right? That's how we view judgment. That God's going to judge us for the things that we've done and, and, and we're the ones on trial here and we're hoping to be acquitted. But an ancient Jew pictures a civil case with them being the plaintiff rather than the defendant. Now, why is that important? While we Christians are hoping for acquittal for the things we're being accused of, or for pardon, however you want to look at it, the Jew of the psalmist's day are looking as as uh, as a plaintiff for a resounding triumph with heavy damages being awarded to them. Do you see the difference? They're looking at divine judgment as bringing a reward to them for the God that they serve. The word judge in verse number 10 carries with it the idea that God sovereignly rules over the nations and he's going to judge everyone with fairness and equity. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see that the whole creation, when they think about how God rules, breaks into joyful praise. Well, you're not going to break into joyful praise if God's going to judge you for all the things you've done wrong, right? That's why he doesn't remember any of that stuff anymore. So his judgment for us is going to be about bringing reward to us. Are you with me? The heavens will rejoice. The earth will be glad. The sea will resound. The fields, the trees, the corn, the wheat, the soybeans. You can tell I'm a farmer. All are going to be jubilant. And the trees of the forest are going to sing for joy. Why? Because God's judgment will reward those who have been worshipers of Him. Wow. That's huge is what that is. 
But in the meantime, we're called to wait and we're called to worship. Friends, Jesus is coming again. You can be sure of it. I don't have time this morning to go into a more complete explanation, but just suffice it to say you can count on it. Jesus is coming. And he's coming to reward those who have diligently served him. And I can't wait personally. As I close and as the worship team comes. I don't often do this, but I'm going to give you some practical steps this morning to make your life a matter of worship. If you have a pencil, you might want to take it down. If you want to wait for the podcast and listen to it later, you can do that too. But this morning in closing, I want to, I want to ask you to do something as a means of making yourself become a worshiper. Starting tomorrow morning, read one psalm tomorrow. And then Tuesday, read two psalms. And then Wednesday, read another psalm. And are you getting it? Every other day, read two psalms. Every day, read one psalm. And I looked at my calendar and I timed it out. And I figured this out. If you read one psalm tomorrow and then two psalms the next day and you repeat that until December 31st, on December 31st, you're going to come to the end of the psalms. It'll change your attitude about worship. It'll increase your passion for worship. The next thing, the next suggestion. How many of you listen to talk radio? I do. Confession time. Most often it's sports talk radio. Here's my challenge to you. Turn off the sports talk and tune in some worship music. Whether on the radio or on a CD or pull up your iTunes app on your phone, hook it to your Bluetooth and listen to worship music. You'll be surprised how it changes your attitude. You just will. One more thing that I'm going to ask of you. Pray for five unsaved friends for five minutes each of the five weekdays before the weekend. Now, in practical terms, here's how it's going to look. Every day, I'm going to pray for five friends or family members that I know who need Jesus. I'm going to call one of their names tomorrow night, and then another name Tuesday night, another name Wednesday night, and I'm going to do that and I may repeat some of them during the year because there's some of them I've got to tell you I'm more concerned about than others. But when Brenda and I go to bed, we're going to start praying for that one friend or family member Monday through Friday till the end of the year. By the way, you can extend it beyond the end of the year if you'd like. What does all this accomplishment what does all it accomplish is what I meant to say. When we praise Him, we'll want to proclaim Him. Try these three simple steps. And as you pray, look for opportunities to care for those for whom you're praying. To share with those for whom you're praying. 
find a way to share with them the good news of Jesus leading up to the upcoming holiday season. And there I did it. One day left in September, and I already got to mention the holidays are coming. I'm excited to see what the outcome of you doing these three steps will be when we enter a new year on January 1st. My guess, no, it's not a guess. I know that God's going to hear your prayers. I know that God's going to see your attitude to become a worshiper. You've heard me say it before. There are two types of people in the world. There are the worshipers and there are the complainers. Which do you want to be? Well, that's kind of a no-brainer, isn't it? And having said all of that, I close with my last oxymoron this morning. Here it is. Bored believers. If you truly understand what being a believer in Jesus is all about, I can guarantee you it will be impossible to be bored. If you're exalting, you're extending, you're expressing, and you're expecting, it's going to fire you up. And when you get fired up, you're going to experience the joy of knowing what it means to partner with God in this thing called kingdom work. Would you bow with me, please? God, help us to stop just sitting, but help us to start singing and sowing and serving. Lord, it's in doing those three things that we will find ourselves without the ability to be bored about being a disciple of Jesus. Lord, as I close this sermon series, it's been a brief series. (coughs) It's been a brief series, but it's an important one, God. Because I believe, I believe to the core of my being that everyone in this room this morning under the sound of my voice much prefers choosing to be worshipers than they do to be complainers. Lord, I find in my own life that if I, if I listen, for example, to, to news talk or sports talk, I find my blood pressure rising. I find disappointment and concern and care to the point of being almost overwhelmed. And what I especially find when I step back and take a look at what it's doing to me is it detracts from my heart desire to be a worshiper. And God, I just have to believe that I'm not alone in that this morning. So God, I pray that you'd give not only me, but everyone in this room the discipline to change what has become familiar to us. To change what we are inputting into this mind and into this heart of ours. 
Rather than focusing on, on the multiplicity of bad news that's out there. Focusing on the good news that will stand the test of time forever. Uplifting our hearts with songs of praise and adoration. Praying for friends and family members, Lord, who desperately, desperately need to see all that you have done in us. God, I know that you're going to honor those efforts. So I pray that you'd work in every heart, every life in this room this morning because, God, when it's all said and done, we want to wear a victor's crown as well. We want to put on that robe of righteousness. We want to experience standing around the throne of the King as joint heirs with the King. Being rewarded for the faith that we've exercised in the good news that you've provided us with. Would you stand to your feet with me? Very simple invitation. How many of you in this room this morning, by a choice of the raising of your hand, would say to me, I want to be a worshiper rather than a complainer? As you might guess, I'm not looking for the hands that are upraised. I'm much more concerned about the ones that are not being raised. Now just tell him, Lord, I want to be a worshiper. I want to wear the victor's crown. I want to bring with me people who have shared the same faith that has saved me and given me the promise of eternal life with you. That's what I want for myself, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.